All right, good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well on this wonderful rainy, slushy, whatever it is outside evening. That was pretty gross. <laughs> That's March for Ohio. You never know what's coming. So tonight we are continuing with uh, our Calvinism study, and uh, my dad's going to be giving a personal testimony and working through some things um, that has really, um, uh, as he's wrestled with Calvinism and, and worked through things as a pastor of another church, and, and many of you, uh, as I've talked with you about it, you're like, you know, Stephen, you've been talking about, you know, your youth pastors and other pastors when you were younger that were working through it. Well, these guys, just in context, uh, were working underneath my father at the previous ministry that we were a part of. And so uh, he definitely has a different take on it uh, of things that not only did he wrestle with earlier on in his ministry as a youth pastor, but also in his ministry as the pastor of Calvary Bible Church. So I'm excited for you to be able to hear from him and some of the things that God has taught him from the Word. Uh, you've got your notes in front of you. The one thing I did want to mention before we start is last week I talked about the Q&A box. So that is back there by Matt again on the back row. And if you need a little note card, I've got Aaron and my wife that are ready to pass those out. So if you'd like a note card to write out your question, if you want to raise your hand really quick, and we can get you a note card. Is there anybody? All right, we got Carrie right there. Anybody else? All right, because we need questions if we're going to do a Q&A. And I know I didn't teach that like perfectly where there's like no questions at all. I <laughs> know that's not possible. <laughs> so, all right, we got Scott over there. Anybody else on this side? All right. And just as a reminder, if something comes up during the week and, uh, and if you want to shoot me a text or send me an email with your question as well, um, I'll gladly receive those and put some of those together. Uh, so after this week, hearing from uh, my dad, uh, we've got next week and we're going to be doing earnestly contending for the faith. So now that we've gone through all the different things about Calvinism, how do we actually deal with these things? And, and what's the right way? How do we have wisdom going about sound doctrine and conversations and relationships? Because and, that's one thing that, that we can just really go haywire if we're not careful. And we want to make sure to handle ourselves with wisdom and, and make sure we're being proper ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. Well, with that, let's go ahead and pray. And then my dad will come up and he will do his thing. And then I'll close things out at the end. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for um, your goodness to us each and every day. Um, you are so, so good to us. And um, Lord, when I, when I think about who I am as a person and, and the things that I've done, even, even in my own personal life, to uh, offend you and, and, and the fact that you have chosen to love me despite my failures, I just stand in awe of you, God, and I'm so thankful. First um, John makes it very clear that we love you because you first loved us. And, and you really did uh, show us how great that you loved each and every one of us by sending your son to die for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I want to thank you for your book that contains just immeasurable treasure and wisdom. It really is the mind of Christ, and it needs to be our heartbeat. And I find that the more time that I spend in your word, the more uh, I really take on your thoughts and your heart, and I'm so thankful because uh, I know that when I do things my way and my own reasoning, my own understanding, it, it always goes awry. Uh, I always end up in a mess. But when I'm willing to abandon the things that I feel and the things that I think and adopt your ways, uh, it never lets me down. Often the road is more difficult, for sure, but it is always better. 
And so I'm so thankful because through your your patience with me and your graciousness, you really have taught me many different things about you, and I I just appreciate it more and more and more. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your your forgiveness. Thank you for your, your mercy that you show us each and every day. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to equip us to be better ambassadors, to represent you in this world. Everything is changing around us so quickly. And we need to take advantage of the time that we have and the opportunities that we have. And so I pray you'd be sensitive to your spirit as he teaches us, as he leads us, and that, God, we would be found faithful. And and when you return, whether it's before we we pass away from this life um, or if we end up meeting you face to face and we come with you, um, God, I pray that we would always have a heart for the things that you love and that we'd hate the things that you hate. Um, and that we would be just the ambassadors that you've called us to be. So God, thank you for this ministry that we have. Thank you for the gospel. And I pray tonight that you would teach us and that we would be ready to hear all that you have for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Stephen asked me a number of months ago to uh, consider being a part of this, uh, he asked me to do two things, to discuss the personal testimony of the very lengthy battlefield I've had with Calvinists over a 40-year period, and how the reality of your King James Bible, having a Greek foundation to it in the New Testament, is so critical in verb tenses and learning how to rightly divide the word. And if you notice the pattern that Stephen kept through these past weeks, having a testimony, letting them hang their own selves with their own unsound doctrinal statements with an arrogance and a condescending attitude that we were lucky to hear these guys talk. And I had to restrain the nauseousness that I was <laughs> feeding because I've, I've heard this for so long. And then the beauty of him laying out, here's the verses they use. And just the verses they use prove their heresy. And then going to the verses that God uses to contradict that diabolical heresy. And the beauty of that is that God is a God of patterns, from Genesis to Revelation, because one of the courses in our Bible Institute is systematic theology. Systematic theology, everything stacks one on top of another, all the ologies. But counterfeit pastors lay out their theology this way. That way they can pull this one out and tweak it and nothing crashes. This one out and tweak it. And so what we're going to look at tonight, we're going to start out with this simple statement. God's holy scriptures. The top of your sheet. There's a phrase throughout our Bible, matter of fact, 311 times. It is written... In the Greek language, that's one word, grammar. 
Grandma also happens to be the Greek word for scribe. A scribe had the responsibility of writing out the scriptures. So in this context, and in the way Stephen was studying, and the way we're going to study it, when we look at a text in the Bible, our responsibility is to look at the words around that text so you know the context of what's really going on there. Because you can pull one word out and make it do and say whatever you want to. But when you look at it in context, you're comparing Scripture with Scripture so you're really understanding what God's having to say. And then, sometimes there is a subtext. There is a hidden spiritual meaning that you do some cross-referencing with, and God ends up putting all that together. So to open with an illustration of how this has worked for me and many other men who love this book and would rather die than not rightly dividing this book, because this book is God's book. It's his heart in print. And you don't mess with God's words. There's so many warnings on that. But a number of years ago, I had the privilege of hearing a man preach named Frank Pardue down in New Philadelphia. And a short time after that, I had the privilege of my entire staff sitting down with Frank Pardue and Mark Trotter, and we were discussing the reality of rightly dividing the word, using discipleship to build the foundation of people's appetite to glorify God through service, because we've been saved to serve. Not to go to heaven, we've been saved to serve. And I had been to many of John MacArthur's conferences. I have spoken at John MacArthur's church. I have done leadership conferences there before he became the whack job Calvinist. I have books 40 years old where he obliterated Calvinism. And as my wife asked me today, well, what happened? He was a very humble man when he started. But all of a sudden, people started lifting him up. And his egomaniacal ways, which is what a simple definition of Calvinism is, made him very proud. And he had a, a, a man on staff that did nothing but turn his sermons into books. John MacArthur doesn't write his own books. Somebody else does. All of a sudden, he became a millionaire. And there is a strong correlation in heresy between money and ego. And when those two come together, you become your own final authority. So, Frank Pardue took a group of his staff out to the pastor's conferences. And they really schmooze you. It's a brainwashing system of turning men into Calvinists. They feed you well. They literally shine your shoes every day. They give you John MacArthur's books. And then John MacArthur, as the morning is going on, he always stands up and makes some kind of declaration before lunch, and he asks you to think about it. And then they come back and, and have the rest of the session. Well, this one session, Frank Pardue deliberately is sitting in the front row with his men, and John MacArthur makes this statement. Without you pastors 
and your knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, your people don't have a chance. And then it was lunchtime. Frank Pardue, being as sharp and bold a man as he was, told his men, we're going back in there early and we're going to sit in the front row. Because when you come back in, there's a microphone here and there's a microphone over here. And the pastor is allowed to come up and ask questions. So John MacArthur steps up and he said, are there any questions? And before he could get questions out of his mouth, Frank Pardue was right there. And he says, Pastor MacArthur, your statement before lunch sounded to me like the Pope. And you are our papal authority. And so without Catholicism and the Pope, we cannot get into heaven. He said, that's heresy. That is heresy. And waved at his men, stood up, and walked out of the room and came back to Ohio. See, the reality is Calvinism is a half a step different than Catholicism. It's that simple. There's nothing new under the sun. God has one doctrine. There's only two doctrines in your Bible. God's doctrine and the doctrine of devils. And that war started in Genesis 3 and will finish at the end of, of Revelation. So where we're heading tonight is the reality that this phrase, God's holy scriptures, there's a, there's a statement in Jude, most holy faith. We must contend for the faith, as Stephen talked about. It's a battle. And this most holy faith is 110 times in your King James Bible. It's critical. It's not just faith, it's holy faith, it's most holy faith, because it's, it's a description of God's holy scriptures. 110 times your KJV. 49 in your new KJV, which means throw that one in the trash. They're already obliterating God's word by their own changes. So in this context, oversimplified, every godly man I've ever met loves to study the Word of God. I have yet to meet a Calvinist who loves to study the Word of God. The only thing they do is read MacArthur's books, Piper's books. They don't want to study. They want someone to feed them and just regurgitate you know, what they have been taught. And so when I think of that statement of MacArthur, Greek and Hebrew, Greek and Hebrew, no, you know how many seminary guys have to take one year of Hebrew and two years of Greek? Well, if you don't use it, it's gone in nine months. It's not easy, easy languages. But in the reality, when, when Stephen asked me a few years ago at the request of Pastor Tom, to not any longer teach in JBI just English, but to teach KJV English. It's one of the greatest blessings I've had in my life. The most important study I ever taught in JBI was that course. And you can talk to the students who've taken it, and they'll tell you the same thing. And what hit me is the reality 
that anyone that knows the basic Greek language that underlies the verb tenses of your KJV Bible, anyone who really understands that recognizes without that understanding, I cannot rightly divide my Bible. Because verbs are everything. God's a God of action. And we're just going to touch on that a little bit here tonight. But let's start with 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And you're familiar with this, these passages. <clears throat> but God reminds us, 2 Timothy 3.15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. The holy scriptures. Which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Without holy scriptures, there's no salvation, Mr. Calvin. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, because Jesus is the Word. All scripture out of these holy scriptures is given by inspiration, breathed by the Holy Spirit into you as you study it of God, and is profitable for doctrine. Everything starts with doctrine, and that's just the word for teach. For reproof, evaluating what you know, proving, do you really know this? Reproof, over and over this Bible saying, do you really know this between your earlobes or in your heart? Because there's two Greek words. Oida. It's just between, you, you know about God. And then there's a word gnosko, which means you know, you know God intimately, personally, in a life-changing fashion. For reproof, because once he's proving you, he's correcting you. He's changing the way you're looking at Scripture and the way you look at life. For instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. As you grow in Christ, you have a greater passion to serve. There's more fruit in your ministry. But don't miss the word perfect in this context. And we'll touch on that more a little bit later. So, number one, as we think about this, how God has given us these holy scriptures and He's preserved them in both the English language and especially the verb endings that we'll look at so we can rightly divide this Word of God. So, number one... The first key is how do you translate and determine what these words mean? When you go from one language to another, I taught Latin for six years. It's very simple. When my students had to write out what that Latin was, to Latin to English, they had to write it out literally. Literally. You couldn't put in what you thought it said. You had to know how to translate that. And that's the word biblically for exegesis. And that's just a big word for literally. But the other type of interpretation of Scripture is called eisegesis. That means you write out what you think it says. There's a pastor not that far from here who stood up at the pulpit on a Sunday morning and said, hey, when you read your Bible... Don't try and figure out what God is saying. The issue is, what does it say to you? Wow. There's a trap door of Satan that will take you to hell. 
Because the reality is there's no such... You're not allowed to write a paraphrase of a Bible, even though in the past they've done that. But that's called dynamic equivalency. You know, in Isaiah 28, we're not going to turn there, uh, verse 10, it says, line upon line, precept upon precept. Everything fits together like a puzzle in this context. And Isaiah 44.20 talks about these counterfeit leaders battling Isaiah. And it said, they feed on ashes. They are deceived. And they cannot say, is this thing in my right hand a lie? It's that close to their face. And you say, oh, how do you like my football? What? What? No, but that's what it means. It, they are that far gone. The common sense that comes with you knowing God disappears when you're sitting under counterfeit pastors. Because it's not from God. It's the devil's doctrine. And that's why in Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who what? Call good evil and evil good. That's what a Calvinist is. He reverses everything. And you've seen that on the screens. So, number two. 2 Timothy 3.16. Stephen, is that on the screen? Okay. You... As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. These things mean what he just taught you in the previous 15 verses. In which are some things hard to be understood, so we study harder. Which they that are unlearned and unstable Calvinists rest, twist. As they do also the other Scriptures... This is the way they operate. They twist everything into what they want it to say. And notice the last four words. Under their own destruction. The damnation that God calls down upon people that are playing games with His Word because that Word is named Jesus Christ. And you don't mess with that name or that Word in this context. So this is what you know, Peter talks about. You're not allowed to take this book and have your own private interpretation. Every one of those men on the screen, that was their private interpretation. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but the condescending arrogance which, which they talk down to people. Like, you're lucky to know them, and I've battled that for 25 years until God brought me here. So this unlearned, this twisting, the Greek word is metatithemy. Meta just means change. Metatithemy means to twist the words of God, to change the words of God. Uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just a little bit to your left. Chapter 1. And let's start in verse 6, even though that's not on your notes. And again, Paul's talking to Timothy about the battle for the Bible. The, the, the whole Bible is the battle for the Bible. But verse 6, you're familiar with this. Excuse me. From which some have swerved, having turned aside, unto vain jangling. That's Calvinism. Vanity of vanities. You forsake your own mercy when you walk down that path. Always changing the word. Verse 10. God uses very strong terminology for people who mess with His word. For whoremongers, we'll touch on that more later, 
For them that defile themselves with mankind, the greatest perversions imaginable. For men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. If there be any other thing that is contrary or opposed to sound doctrine. That's why we spend so much time having electives and discipleship, and the Bible Institute, so forth and so on. And the fact that we are, we are carrying this out from second graders, I'm sorry, two-year-olds and three-year-olds all the way up. Because they're teachable at, at any level. You start feeding them the Word of God. Uh, let's turn to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And I know that you're familiar with a lot of these. Now the Spirit speaketh, and we're going to talk about this more later. This is where the Greek root comes in, because any verb that ends in E-T-H means every day, all day long. So the Spirit, as you're studying your Bible, as you're praying, never stops talking to you. The question is, are we listening? Do we have ears to hear? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold in Luke chapter 8. He speaketh expressly, meaning it can be understood. Calvinism has you jumping through 35 hoops to bring you back to the fact that you need John Calvin and Calvinism. Now, as a side note, you've heard me say this before, anything that ends in ism is not written by the hand of God. Hinduism, Catholicism, anything that ends in ism, Calvinism, it's all Satan's counterfeit doctrines. So, this Spirit is speaking expressly that in the latter times, and which we are certainly in the last minutes of the latter days of the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And the context here is professing Christians. I've seen 21 pastors whom I have worked with who have sat under godly teaching walk away from it into Calvinism. Why? In most of those cases, there is a strong correlation between money and counterfeit doctrine. I've worked with close to 25 millionaires over the course of the last 45 years of ministry. They're the most egocentric, condescending, and I've watched them sit under teaching at the level of Pastor Tom in this church and eventually walk away. Two men in this church, millionaires, walked away from this church. I was standing here, and I made the statement. There was a, a guy I'd never seen him before. And I made the statement, be careful of the devil's doctrines. Because the strongest one moving across America, New York Times 10 years ago had a major headline, fastest growing religious movement in America, Calvinism. Why? Because men quit preaching the Bible. So people in church today are ignorant because of the lack of spiritual food. So I made the statement, Calvinism comes straight out of the throat of hell. Well, that man did not know who he was. Boom, he's out the door. Pastor Tom happened to know the man. And if I recall correctly, Pastor Tom found out where he was going. He went down to a large Baptist church, not that far from here, Tom called the pastor and told him, I want you to know you've got a Calvinist that just came through the door. 
That pastor's remark was, I don't care about Calvinism. Woe is me when you say to God, you don't care about doctrine. That's called a hireling in John 10. A man who's not been called to ministry, he has a job making money. Short time after that, we got an NFL football player in this church. I would guess for about a year to 18 months. I spent a lot of time with him because he was interested in working with youth. And one day we got into a little bit of an argument because he had bizarre theology. And he said to me, God owes me answers. I said, the only thing God owes you is hellfire. And I spent some time with him. And he's now with ten other millionaires in a church east of here. The biggest egomaniac I've ever met. It's common. Ego, money, ego plus money equals Calvinist. We'll see how this unfolds. But again, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their consciences seared. God has killed their conscience, and now they've become pathological liars. They live lies, they tell lies, they believe their own lies. And where that has happened, I've seen their marriages disintegrate. I've seen their kids become a train wreck in that context. Because you just invited uh, this sinful mindset into your family, where you're supposed to be leading your family. Number three, for the sake of time, we're going to do some scooting here. John 15, 16. Turn there with me. John 15, 16. We're not going to get to all these verses, but you can look up some of them later. This is one of as Stephen pointed out, Calvinism has their proof texts. They say this is irrefutable, and this is one of them. John 15, 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And that's what the Calvinist clings to. He doesn't look at the rest. And ordained you, that just means made you fit for service, that ye should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, and whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, which means according to your Bible, he may give it to you. So they proclaim, right? It is. is. They're chosen. No. What's the context of this choosing? These are saved disciples. And he's been talking with them about bearing fruit, more fruit, much fruit, and that's the normal Christian life. The closer you get to Jesus, the more fruitful your marriage is. The more fruitful your parenting skills are. The more fruitful your teens are, your children are. So what's really going on here? He's talking to Christians. not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking about election. And, and this is just another one of the metatithemy, that he's twisting it for what they want to say. What Jesus is saying here is these disciples, these saved men, they're going to take the gospel to the world. And their fruit's going to be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So John chapter 3, we're not going to turn there. You're familiar with it. 
Whosoever believeth. Always take a word like whosoever and realize that's three words. That's a Trinitarian powerhouse. Whosoever. Who means free will. And what the Calvinists teach, you have no free will. None. That's why the Holy Spirit has to force you to be saved. And the word so, and you're familiar with this, when I was a kid, someone would say something to me, and I'd say, is that so? That's what the word so means. So a person who wants to know the truth, so, and he wants truth, it's ever. That's free will. That word alone is 182 times in your Bible. And of course, believeth, present active participle, means you believe it and keep on believing it because the Spirit grafted it into your heart and He's going to carry that belief into your system so that you're always believing the things that the Spirit's moving you to believe. And when you have that skill set, you can spot a counterfeit pastor and a counterfeit church like that. Because that's the Spirit's job in this context. And they will have eternal life. And I have a fine point pen in my Bible, and I write above that phrase, P-S-A, and then at the top of my Bible where there's openness, I write the statement, present, subjunctive, active. Now what does that mean? You have eternal life. That means presently, because you believed and keep on believing, subjunctive, think of a junction. Subjunction means you come to a fork in the road, and sub means you know which way to go. Subjunctive means eliminating all doubt. I mean, when I was unsaved, I didn't realize how deaf, dumb, and stupid I was until I became a Christian and saw, how did you ever believe that? How did you ever do that? How did you let your buddies drag you into that scenario? Duh, I was lost. And all of a sudden you get saved and these, we'll go into that, the wheels start turning differently. But present subjunctive means there's presently this action in your life because you believed. Subjunctive means eliminating all doubt. So present subjunctive active means that that action is never going to stop. That's, every now and then I have to ask people, are you sure you're saved? Are you watching the decisions you make? Are you listening to the words that come out of your mouth? Are you watching what's happening in your marriage? Where's the Spirit in all of this? Well, it's in the simple language of your Bible. Because to break this down, in our uh, English language, there's six tenses. It's simple. Present, past, future. Present, perfect. Past, perfect. Future, perfect. What a coincidence. Why are there three perfect tenses? Because God says in Matthew 5.48, what? Be ye perfect as I am perfect. He's given you a perfect Bible with perfect tools so that you are able to become perfect because you can't do it. Just like be ye holy as I am holy. We cannot do that, but you have a holy book with holy Scriptures and a Holy Spirit making sure that those words are engrafted within us in this context. We also have three voices. Active voice is simple. You're doing the action. But there's something in the Greek language that comes into your, your, your King James Bible, and it's called a middle voice. 
We'll touch on that in a moment. It means God's in the middle of this. And there's a passive voice, active, you're doing it, passive, God's doing it, but middle means God is working and He's drawing you and working you and He brings you to the middle and says, now what are you going to do? Are you going to join with me? And that is a key part of the joy of seeing God changing your life. Sometimes you decide it. Sometimes God just does it. And other times says, no, you're going to have to work at this one. Every day, there's going to be a middle voice action where we're going to come together. Simple example is you having your devotions. And when you really start having your devotions with your heart, you will never study your Bible the same. Because you see the Spirit changing your attitudes. And when your attitudes change, what always changes? Your actions. So that's what John 3, 15 and 16 you know, is all about. And then the other thing we're going to look at more here in a moment is there's four moods in Scripture. Now this is basic English. How many of you had English teachers in school that taught you all of these things? And don't put your hands up because I know there aren't any. I had a phenomenal English teacher who taught English at Akron University in the evenings. She taught all of this. She was also my English teacher and my Latin teacher. But four moods. Optative. Well, that's pretty simple. That means you have an option. Means free will. Imperative, you're familiar with that. It's a command. Indicative means there's a clear indicator this has happened in your life. And subjunctive, eliminating all doubts. So let's see how this unfolds. Luke Chapter 8. Turn there with me. Luke 8. Verses 5 to 8. And you're familiar with this, the parable of the soils. How the sower went out, and it fell on the hard side, and the fowls ate it, and then the rock, in verse 6, it, it withered away. Verse 7, and some fell among the thorns, and the thorns took it out. But there's only one soil. Everything is the matter of the soil. When you have devotions, do you prepare your heart even before you have devotions? Lord, search me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. And wipe it out right now so when I have my devotions, I'm hearing your voice with my heart and not just my mind or my ears. Because in number eight, an other fell on good ground. Good means godly every time you see it in your Bible. And it sprang up and bear fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, all that preceding, he cried, He that hath ears, let him hear. Free will. It's a choice in this context. Free will is everything. Revelation 22. Stephen, would you put that up there? 22.17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth, E-T-H, every day, all day long, you hear that still small voice drawing you. Say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. Come, come, come. That's all throughout your Bible from Isaiah all the way through. And whosoever will, free will, let him take the water of life freely. Now how often do we have to see these statements that tell us free will 
And yet one of the five major points of Calvinism is you have no free will. Somebody's lying. Who is it in this context? It's really pretty simple. Um, Acts 7.51 talks about you can't resist the Holy Spirit, even though Calvin says you can. And here's just a simple key. Remember, Satan had a free will. Adam had a free will. And look at the damage that happened when they didn't exercise that free will. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are times I'm embarrassed when God's had to tell me something ten times before the bells start ringing. Wake up, dummy! How many times do I have to tap you on the shoulder? You didn't listen, so I'm, and now I'm smacking you in the face a little bit. You keep stabbing yourself in the heart and wonder why you're in pain. Moving on. Matthew 5. Over and over and over, Jesus made the statement, Ye have heard, but I say. You know, 1 Corinthians 2.10 reminds us, you can write that in your own notes, we must learn the deep things of God. Well, to learn the deep things of God, it says deep calleth unto deep. You have to be willing to dig. I don't know how often you're just having your devotions and you come across a verse and, and hopefully in some of your Bibles there's extra cross references and you say, I've got to find more about this. This has really stirred me here. Uh, and, and the reality is Jesus' greatest battle was with Pharisees and Sadducees. There's nothing new under the sun. The Pharisee added to God's Word. The Sadducee took away from God's Word. That's still happening today. Today they're called liberals and legalists. It's the same thing. And in this reality, Calvinists today are modern-day Pharisees and Sadducees. Some add to the Word. Some take away from the Word. They can't all be saying the same thing because the reality is there's lies on both sides. So they, they, they can't even connect with each other. I've seen Calvinists you know, going like this. Because some are four points, some are three points, some are five points. And God says, no, there's no points. Just read your Bible. And one of the greatest challenges for us is are we listening to the right voices? You know, we had a lot of new people coming to this church in the last 18 months, and how many of them said, I didn't know I was starving to death. But by the grace of God bringing me here, Matthew 7, 15, you know, how did Jesus state it? These people are wolves in sheep's clothing. That's one of the simplest definitions of a Calvinist. Um, Matthew chapter 23, let's just look at a few of those verses. Turn there with me. Just another place where Steve, uh, the Lord, our Savior, is just hammering these scribes and Pharisees. Let's just look at verses 33 to 37. Strong terminology out of Jesus. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, the most dangerous snake, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, based on what I just told you, behold, don't miss this, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all, all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, 
son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily, I say unto you, verily means truth, it means amen. It can be translated three different ways. I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And basically, that's going to happen in 70 A.D. when God wipes out Jerusalem and the temple. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen, animals know how to do this, gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. And you know the story of Matthew. They would not, would not, would not, would not, and then what happens at the end? You could not. There's a process of hardening the heart when you're witnessing to people, and they just say, no, I'm not interested in that right now. No, 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 keep that stuff away from me. And there comes a day where that would not comes to uh, could not. Acts 17.11, you're familiar with this. The Brians were more noble than the Thessalonians. Thessalonians were some pretty sharp people as you read those two books. But these Berean people, that, this church is filled with Bereans. They received the word and searched, present after part of circle, every day, all day long, I'm just going to pause here for a second. I have never, ever met a Calvinist who loves studying their Bible. They only study what MacArthur has written and the other ad nauseum guys that follow him around. True Christians love to study the Scriptures daily, whether those things that they're being taught, that's what the Brians were doing, were so optative mood, which means free will. The Brians took advantage of that free will. Another interesting phrase in your Bible is let us. Use 603 times in your Bible. That's why in John 5 it says, search the Scriptures. Because as you study the Scriptures, you're studying the heart of Christ. Number 9, Acts 17.12 we're not going to turn there. It's a statement, therefore. Therefore just means cause and effect. The things you were just looking at, that the Bereans did in verse 11, many believed. Many believed is A-I-N-A, aorist, indicative, active. Aorist in the Greek means a one-time action at a certain point in time. Okay, here's a timeline of Rory Winnicka's life. There's a dot, one dot right here. That's the word aorist, a singular point in time. On July 17, 1971, I was told the gospel and believed the gospel by people who loved me enough to embrace me as they taught me the gospel. They lived it. So aorist means a one-time decision, historically, that doesn't have to be repeated ever. You only get saved once. Indicative means there's a clear indicator. People are going to see you got saved. And the more heathen you were, <laughs> as I was, I moved home after realizing I can't live with these roommates anymore. And I wasn't home two days, and my dad said, what's happened to you? So what do you mean what's happened to you? He said, you treat your sister like she's a human being. <laughs> I mean, that was the reality. Boom, boom, boom. We lived in a home where there was no Bible. We didn't have any conflict resolution skills. And three days later, my sister comes and says, what's happened to you? And I tell her, and she drops to her knees right then and there and says, how do I get right with God? 
Because we've never been to church. Not once as a family in this context. And active just means it just keeps on going because now the Spirit is in you in this context. Number 10, Romans 2.4 talks about repentance. We're not going to turn there. It talks about the goodness of God's Word that comes through repentance. And that's the word metanoia. It just means a change of mind. And again, if you got saved later in life, all of a sudden you get saved and what you used to love you're now hating. And what you used to hate you now love. Because you now have the mind of Christ. And that battlefield of carnality that always is winning in some fashion in your life, all of a sudden, Jesus Christ has kicked that out of the door. That's why repentance is such a critical word. Uh, I, there was a man that left this church years ago, and I, and I spent a lot of time with him. And I, he said, where are you going to church? And I said, you're kidding me, that's a Calvinistic church. What are you doing? I said, here's what I want you to do. Take a three-by-five card, put three words on it. Hell, sin, and repentance. And over the next four weeks, put a slash mark every time you hear one of those words. He never heard the words in a month. We came back for lunch. I said, what are you doing there? He said, I like their music. End of that discussion. If you don't get it after that, and again, change of mind, and in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it's metamorphosis. You're more familiar with that. That means you're a new creature in Christ. Now, here's one of the keys. Romans 8. Stephen already touched on this, but I want to touch on it in a little context of the significance of the Greek language underlying the words that are being used. Romans 8, 28-30. And you're familiar with it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called, and that's where the Calvinist gets hung up, the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, they get hung up. He also did predestinate, they get hung up. To be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Now here's the problem. The word foreknow is a beautiful Greek word, prognosko. I was at my doctor's last week for a physical. Godly Christian man named Mark Hillier. And I said, okay, Mark, I need to ask you a simple question. When I come in here and you take a test and immediately you see the results of that test, is that called a prognosis? He said, yeah, that's what it is. I said, huh. So that means you know ahead of time when you see that disease, you know the cure. That's all that word foreknow means is to know fully ahead of time. He's been trained. When you've been trained in the Bible and things happen, you know ahead of time what you're going to do even though you may not thinking about it at the moment. So in the reality of this, here's the application. God knew ahead of time Adam's fall. That was the prognosco. That was the foreknowledge. And because God knew Adam's fall, He knew the cure for the disease, and that was the cross. The second Adam became the cure. The first Adam was the disease. 
So at the cross, God is telling you, I had a plan from eternity past. Do you think it's a coincidence in the Old Testament that Passover was for everybody? Well, sure it was for everybody, not just for the elect of the lies of, of the Calvinists. Because anyone could bring the blood of a spotless lamb. Jesus Christ was the cure for all of this. So then they love the word predestinate. Well, th that's pretty simple. You know the destination ahead of time. That's what this is tying into. But the application here is it's the plan that was predestinated, not the people. It's simple. The second Adam and the cross provided all that. That salvation gift involves His call must be answered to. God's calling, but are you answering? That's what He's talking about here. And, and godly or justified sinners who admit that sin, they respond. And again, remember the days of Jesus. How often He, he preached and preached and preached and said they would not. They would not. They would not. Would not. And when you get down towards the end in John 8.33, it says, they could not. Your hearts are hard. God gave you all those chances. And of course, in Calvinism, it, 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 you don't have a choice. You're saved or you're lost. Before you're born, you're born again. Really, where'd you pull that one out of? And who would believe that? You were predestined to heaven or hell before you came out of your mother's womb? I mean, duh, I didn't even have to be saved to say, i got to chew on that one. I, I, you know where I'm going. So in this context, number 12, we're just going to skate through these. All that one eternal truth can have it. Whosoever will. That's throughout your Bible in Romans 10, 13. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Middle voice again, you just cooperate with God's call and answer that call. Number 13, Calvinists say God can hate whomever He wants. And they butcher a verse in Romans 9.13 when they say, Jacob I love and Esau I've hated. That has nothing to do with people. It has to do with two nations. Jacob was Israel and Esau was the enemy of Israel. So it's two nations, not men in Romans 16.13. 17. There's parallelisms where God's always comparing and contrasting in the book of Romans. The first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam condemned us. The second Adam saved us. And it's much more. It's a free gift. That phrase is used over and over. What Adam did to mess everything up, Jesus did much more, much more, much more to save you from that condemnation of being a sinner. And it's a free gift. It's a free gift. Free gift implying to everyone. Turn to Psalm 120. No, we're not, for the same time, don't turn there. This is the one that really ripped my heart out when I first began to understand the heresies. Where God tells a woman, the fruit of the womb is His reward. Psalm 127, verse 3. And yet they will teach, no, no, that baby was either predestined to heaven or hell before it was born. How in the world can it be a reward? You don't even have to think about that one very long. And then I had this, I've got to restrain myself here. 
I had this heretical, vile, despicable, gay Calvinist who tried to mess with his mind, my son. Good thing I'm not a murderer. Wrote letters to Pastor Tom for several years after I came on here saying Rory Winnick is not fit to be a pastor. I did not know he was gay at that moment. The church found out by looking at their records. He embezzled money from the church for his gay liaisons and the church was paying for it. He's the man that drove me out of my previous ministry and pulled all my staff under the umbrella of Calvinism behind my back without a single man talking to me. But glory be to God, what Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. God brought me here. To God be the glory. And so the man was eliminated from ministry, and guess what? He's back in ministry now. And I won't even touch that one. Number 16, Calvinism's keys, satanic keys. They keep talking about the sovereignty of God. Sovereign, sovereignty. You know that that is zero times in your entire Bible? That word isn't even there. But when the Calvinists wrote their own Bible, the NIV Bible, written by the hand of a lot of Calvinists participating, that word shows up 303 times when it's not in the KJV once. What a coincidence. The Bible they write has sovereignty written throughout it. And you remember in Josiah's day, the, the church in America today has lost the word of God in God's house, just like in Josiah's day. And again, to wrap this up, Calvin's final authority was Augustine. Stephen did a great job walking through that. It's not God. It's Augustine. Uh, today, the Calvinist final authority is John MacArthur and Calvin, and they're both in the same basket. That's why Romans 121 reminds us, don't, don't, don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. You've got to know what you believe, and more importantly, why you believe it. I don't know of any doctrine that's built on one word, one phrase, or, or one verse. Just do your homework. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir. This, is, this church is so blessed to have hungry people. But God uses godly pastors to draw hungry, hungry people who really want to know Jesus instead of just know about Jesus. Number 18, as we wrap this up, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 talks about there's another Jesus, there, there's another gospel. In John 10, Jesus uh, you know, called the counterfeit pastors the money changers. That When he walked into the temple, he was going to flip over the ta tables of the money changers. That's modern-day Calvinists. They're money changers. They're in it for the money, like I said. I know ten men that started out basically good, and every one of them eventually became a millionaire or a mega-millionaire, and every one of them walked away from God to be in a church that's Calvinistic because their ego drew them into it. Just like their money drew them to Satan himself and the way they use that money. That's why there's an interesting statement in, in, uh, in the agricultural world, I guess. And you ever hear of Judas goats? 
a Judas goat? A shepherd has a Judas goat. And a Judas goat mingles among the sheep. And they get to know that Judas goat. And when it comes slaughter time, that Judas goat goes up a ramp to take them to the slaughter, and there's a door here. And the Judas goat goes in the door, and the sheep go to the slaughter. There's a lot of Judas goats out there today called pastors. Way too many. Calvin's lies, God uses these terms 66 times, whoredoms, whoring, whores, whoremongers. Why? Because Calvinistic churches are counterfeit brides. The church is Jesus' bride. But a lot of churches today are nothing less than Laodicean whorehouses. You can study those terms on your own. Uh, Revelation 21.8. Do you have that, Stephen? But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth ETH forever and ever with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. That's the description of Calvinistic thinking in one verse. So listen to the right voices. Number 20. Uh, and we're just not going to go into the participle part. And finally, Calvinists are conspiratorial, pathological liars. And Stephen, will you pull up a few verses and we'll wrap this up. Uh, Hebrews 12.8, I think is one of them. If you can sin against God, like we're talking about, and be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, the counterfeits, then ye are bastards illegitimate pastors. God uses very strong terminology for people who are trashing the person of Christ and not sons. 2 Corinthians 18, do you have that one? Not Corinthians, I'm sorry. 2 Chronicles. Now therefore behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit, a demonic spirit, in the mouth of these counterfeit teachers and the prophecies of Calvin and Calvinism. And the Lord has spoken evil against thee in that context. Uh, Ephesians 4.4, you don't have to turn there. We're tossed to and by fro by every wind of doctrine. In uh, Matthew 16.26, do you have that one, Stephen? For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm not really angry with most Calvinists. I'm heartbroken. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew that the Hosanna crowd was going to shift to the crucify him crowd because of the Pharisees and Sadducees that knew how to play against the weak understanding of the Jewish people. To God be the glory that we have this to separate the wheat from the chaff. Father, thank you that you're telling us to always search our own hearts and your spirit's doing that work as we open your word. I thank you for the ravenous hunger in this room and in this church and how you're literally building this church so the gates of hell will never prevail against it. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.
Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Rory. Rory, next.